Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 32, and I'm so pleased to be joined again by Dr. Z, who was on the podcast a few episodes ago to talk about um, ACT and OCD. Um, And she's back with another workbook, um, this time focusing on perfectionism and high achieving behaviors. Uh, The full title of that workbook is Acceptance and Commitment Skills for Perfectionism and High Achieving Behaviors. Um, So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Z. Thank you so much for having me. That's very kind of you. Totally, totally. So it seems like you're a pretty busy lady. How many workbooks do you have at this point? <laughs> That's very silly. Um, I think um, I have, I am the co-author of two books with my mentor. And then by now I have six solo books in which I'm the solo author. Uh, but all my books are the application of ACT for fear-based struggles, right? That's I don't write anything in general. It's just how we can wrestle or handle worries, fears, and anxieties using ACT skills. Sure. So that's and, what I prioritize a lot. Right. And is, is Russ Harris, is that your mentor? No, my mentor is Matthew McKay. Okay. Yeah, Russ Harris is a really close friend of mine, and he has had a role also shaping my immersion in ACT. The same with Kirk Strozal, which I like a lot his work too. So I think in, within the ACT community, there are different people that I have um, I have been exposed to, like Mike Tui is another person. Uh, but my primary mentor is Matthew McKay. I met him in graduate school hundreds of years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's cool. I've, I've heard people discuss the mentor relationship as being pretty supportive. Um, have you found it pretty significant in your professional career? Yeah, yeah, I feel, I absolutely feel very grateful to have met my mentor. Um, It's a funny story because as you know, I'm immigrant. I came to the country in 2001. And when I came into the States, I carried with me two pieces of luggage and two boxes of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing led to another thing. Two years later, around 2003, I am, applying to grab a school and I'm sitting there in this class in a very intimate room with maybe eight or nine of us. Um, there was my mentor and every time I look at him, the face was so familiar, but I couldn't figure out how I met him. Right? I was like, I know him from somewhere, but couldn't connect the dots. One year later, I am moving from one apartment into another apartment as graduate students do. And I am unpacking my boxes. And then turns out that there were two of his books translated into Spanish. Mm. And when I saw that picture of him, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my mentor. So after that, I tortured him with all types of works and projects and papers. Right? <laughs> and so it has been definitely a very um, sweet and caring relationship. I feel very, very grateful for all what he has taught me about cognitive behavior therapy. He introduced me to ACT, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and I think with time, I became an emancipated mentee, finding my own voice and finding my own style. But over the years, we continue collaborating in different projects. So it has been extremely supportive. And in some way, I think the relationship with my mentor has shown me the way of how we can capitalize what therapy is, how we can capitalize the relationship that gets developed when you're working with clients. Um, so I feel very, very grateful for that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounded like you were reading his books unbeknownst to you before you'd even met him. 
exactly like that. I didn't have a clue. Yeah. He has written a famous book called When Anger Hurts. And the book got very popular because it was the first book really deconstructing all these myths about anger that like, like venting anger is always helpful. You always have to talk about when you're feeling angry. So his book actually lays out all the research that was coming out on anger and how it can be unhelpful to vent your emotions uh, when you're feeling angry and how you can stop engaging in rumination, angry rumination. So that's the book that got translated into Spanish, one of them. And that's one of the books that I brought with me when I came to the States. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think too much about anger personally because it's not it's not one of my own afflictions. Um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't get angry too often. I'm more of the anxious type. But I wonder, do do they often go together in, in your client population? Do you see a lot of overlap between people having kind of anger issues and anxiety issues? great question i think i think anger can be a form of dealing with emotional regulation problems um in in terms of the coexisting with anxiety i think in cases in which a person is dealing with ocd with obsessive compulsive disorder and they are dealing with particular obsessions and they are engaging in mental compulsions if someone interrupts the mental compulsion they may see an angry based response right? Mm. So in that way, I may have seen how it may look like anger, but it's triggered by OCD. Uh, but in general, I haven't seen too much the, the coexistence of anxiety-based problems and anger. What mm. I have seen is more the coexistence of anxiety-based struggles or fear-based struggles and difficulties dealing with uncomfortable emotions, more like emotional regulation struggles. So I have seen more of that. Anger is just one piece or one emotion that can be uncomfortable. But there, there are other emotions like sadness, um, jealousy, um, frustration that sometimes can coexist with anxiety struggles to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And this might seem like a really sort of subjective question or one that's hard to answer, but have you found either in your personal life or in your practice that some emotions are easier or harder to sit with than others? Mm. Um, like I have this assumption that because fear and anxiety are the kinds of emotions that kept us, you know, from being eaten by the tigers, you know, when we were evolving that those, you know, happen to be the most difficult ones to kind of just sit still with. But that could just be my own personal bias because anxiety is one of the most um, uh, popular emotions in my mind. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's that's a great question. I, I was actually talking about it a couple of weeks ago. I think given though we're wired to experience all types of emotions, they are emotions that can be fleeting throughout the day, right? Like sometimes if I get hungry, for example, that would be one emotion. Or if I find myself thinking about my time in Bolivia, I'm reminiscing about that, that may come with some sweetness. So that's another fleeting emotion. But there are other emotions that the literature calls them social emotions, like shame, guilt. They have keep us alive, right? Like we needed to check our, our social behavior in comparison to the group. Um, the challenge is that many times I think those emotions are really hard to navigate. In the case of shame, for example, when people experience shame, when we experience shame, that also comes with a message as if something is wrong with us, 
which mm-hmm. is different than guilt. So I think these more social or moral-based emotions, as they call them, they can be hard to navigate because they are reflecting in some way our identity or we get fused with them. And we believe into every single thought that comes with emotion. In the case of shame, again, I may think that I am defective, I am a mess, I am stupid, I am unattractive. So I think those emotions that are tackling our identity, I think they are harder to see it and navigate through or to deconstruct versus other emotions that can be more fleeting. Mm. Right. So the ones that we really hold on to or... um maybe the ones that we think are true, especially true in a negative sense, um, might be some of the more difficult ones to, to sit with. Yeah. I I think I experienced something similar. Uh, and I guess from my perspective, I, I feel like anxiety is the hardest, um, shame and guilt are also really hard. And then things that are a little less difficult, at least for me, are, are things like sadness, um, And happiness even are are easier. Well, of course, that one's easy to have around. Um, But anyways, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the book. So the last book was um, really focused on OCD. And this one, I'm sure, has like a lot of overlap. But what's what's the difference here? Why why this book? What sets it apart uh, in its being specifically focused on perfectionism and high high achievers? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your consideration with this work. Um, I think it's helpful to deconstruct what we know about perfectionistic actions or striving behaviors. Um, Many times people think that perfectionistic actions are exclusive to academic environments or career performance. Mm -hmm. But when we're thinking about perfectionism or high achieving actions or striving behaviors, we're referring to a strong attachment to outcomes to goals. We are also speaking about about the process in which my sense of identity is defined by the things that I do. And I have this petrifying fear of being a failure or things going wrong. So if you hold that as a frame of what perfectionistic actions are, that could apply to all types of content. Like I can deal with social perfectionists. I can deal with perfectionists in the sports arena. I can deal with perfectionists in the way I'm living my faith, my spiritual life. So having this strong attachment to how things supposed to be, having this strong strong attachment to myself defined by outcomes applies to all types of areas in our life. Parents can be trying to be, be the perfect parents, right? So I think it's not exclusive to career performance or academic performance, but it's embedded into every single area of our life. Um, so that's one clarification, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other aspect is that when you're thinking about OCD, they are certainly what we call perfectionistic OCD, in which there is an obsession, an intrusive and wanted thought image that pops up. It's very sticky. It's hard to let go. And then a person may do a compulsion. They may quickly you know, respond to neutralize that obsession. So with perfectionistic OCD, a person may have fear and a strong fear of making mistakes. Uh, let's say when they're writing a paper, so they may erase multiple times. They may delete, they may edit a lot of times. So that's an OCD episode. Um, 30 to 40% of people dealing with OCD may have perfectionistic tendencies, but not everyone. Because again, perfectionist is primarily 
related to a strong attachment to myself defined by outcomes, things that I do. I am petrified of being a failure as a whole self. And I don't, I don't want things to go wrong. So I struggle with that. So that's a differentiation that is also helpful to keep in mind. Okay, so so you could be uh, you could suffer from OCD without being a perfectionist. I that's, think that's correct. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Which yes, which most people think that if you have OCD, that means you know that you automatically have perfectionistic tendencies. That's not the case. Only thirty to forty percent of the population in research studies they have found that. Um, and the other aspect that I get very passionate is to clarify that. If you look at the literature and all the messages that we hear today, we have demonized perfectionistic actions. It's the evil. People have to let go of their standards. They should stop trying to do things right and perfect. Mm-hmm. The challenge with those messages is that even though they may be coming from a place of having good intentions for a person's well-being, for people who have this strong fear of being a failure, it can be very alienating. Right, because perfectionistic actions pay back. If I deeply care about something, if I want to do things right, why should I let go of the standards? Hmm. If you deeply care about your podcast, why should you stop investing your time, financial resources, and energy in having a good podcast with good quality sound, screening your interviewees? If someone tells you, you should let go, you're spending too much time paying attention to details, you're researching too much time, the microphone that you should buy, why should let go when it pays back, right? Mm. So the challenge is that in my experience, um, there have been many times when I'm working with my clients and also in my own life, um, in which they actually struggle in making any change in their lives because of those messages. Because what they hear is like, let go of the standards. And the question is, why should I do that if it's paying back? Why should mm-hmm. I do mediocre work? Why should I stop caring? So what I have found extremely helpful is to acknowledge that when we deeply care about things, of course, we want to get them right and perfect. Of course, we want to invest time trying to find the best um, device that we need to buy or the best uh, recipe that we want to cook tonight because we deeply care. So my frame is instead of demonizing perfectionistic actions, I do believe that we can teach clients, and I practice this in my own life, we can learn to harness the power of perfectionistic actions without losing ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, a somewhat unconventional approach, right? Because uh, a lot of people, like you said, would sort of demonize perfectionistic perfectionistic attitudes um, because it seems like sometimes when people are striving to find the best of anything, um, sometimes maybe they're sort of like a, a prisoner to that perfectionism mm-hmm. and they're doing it kind of out of fear instead of perhaps out of, um, you know, some deeply held value or priority. Um, so how do you how do you help people, I guess, um, people struggling with perfectionism to maintain their standards without, as you said, lose themselves? Yeah, I think... Um... Some people have made this distinction between adaptive perfectionistic and maladaptive perfectionists. Mm. Or people talk about healthy perfectionists and unhealthy perfectionists. The challenge I have with those constructs is that we're looking at a human process in these binary ways, either or, good or bad, black and white. 
But in the work that I do with my clients, and I'm a psychologist, you know, every single day I'm there in the room with people, you have a continuum, right? You may have people that they duplicate about their performance when they're playing basketball, when they are with the, uh, raising their kids, and there are other areas in their life in which they may not. So I think it's not this either or behavior, but it's more like a continuum. Um, and what I have found is that contrary to what, what most people believe, they're actually very in touch with their values. They're actually, they deeply care. The challenge is that they're holding into that, those values with white knuckles, right? Like mm-hmm. in a, perhaps a rigid way. And they are not discriminating when good enough is enough and when mm-hmm. you can shoot for high standards. Um, so I like to talk about playing the workability game. Instead of playing the game of doing things right and perfect all the time, right? let's play the workability game and let's take a look. Are you engaging in this perfectionistic action because you're running away from something going wrong? Because you're trying to protect yourself of any not good enough story? Mm-hmm. Or because you're really, really deeply caring about this value? So I teach different micro skills, all act based to start distinguishing, discriminating what's really driving, what's really behind me spending hours and hours searching for the best mattress I need to buy or spending like five nights in a row without sleeping, working in this paper or spending hours and hours cleaning my house. So when my neighbors come, they don't think I'm a mess. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm packing a little bit what's driving those behaviors has been extremely helpful. Is that in the ACT model? Because I know the, it seems like in some ways, and this, it's not, well, maybe it is a criticism of ACT, but in some ways ACT acknowledges that, you know, suffering is part of life. Mm -hmm. Anxiety, sadness, and unpleasant emotions are part of life. And one of the big skills that is needed as is what the A stands for in ACT is acceptance. So what, what role does like finding out what drives behaviors because that almost sounds to me like more deeper work maybe more like traditional psychotherapy work how how does that um live inside of uh like a regular act treatment of a patient that's a great great question here's what i can tell you um because our mind is more like a content generating machine all the time coming up with all types of dreams hypotheses reasons you name it when we're thinking about perfectionistic actions there is what we call fusion, right? There is this process that within ACT, we, we refer to a time in which you're holding into those thoughts in a very rigid way. That's the only less you're, you're using to look at reality and that's driving unworkable behavior. So in the case of perfectionistic actions, there is fusion with a conceptualized self with who I am. I am defined by what I do, or I always have to give my best. I, can, I cannot ever make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, though, and they become, I think, natural ways and perhaps automatic patterns of behavior that a person doesn't realize. Uh, because on the outside, all those behaviors, you know, are socially reinforced. Yeah. You yeah. work hard, it pays back. And if I'm a video editor and I spend a lot of detail, pain, and all the minutiae that comes with editing image, it pays back, right? You have this beautiful product, right? When you are writing, you have to write a perfect sentence, a perfect word, a perfect flow, right? Um, so, so I think it becomes socially reinforced. And also, it's, it I, in some way protects me from looking that behind those behaviors, I am petrified about not being good enough or what yeah. 
people think of me if I make a mistake, right? Or what would people think of me if I don't perform well when I'm playing basketball? So unpacking those, looking at what's the driver, it may look like it's it's more deeper therapy, but within the ACT model, what we're looking is what is a person fused with? What is a person holding onto with white knuckles? What are those thoughts? And mm-hmm. not only that, but also we're looking in ACT terms, what is a person avoiding, right? If you don't work so hard or if you make an error or if you send a good enough paper, how do you feel about yourself? What's the body knows that may show up? Right? What are you really working so hard to protect yourself from feeling and sensing? So it's still very act consistent, but mm-hmm. all what I'm trying to do and what I find in my work is that, and again, this, I also know this in my personal life, right? We get fused with one, one single way of doing things right and perfect. We're not looking beyond that or behind that behavior. Totally. Okay, that makes sense. So maybe let's make it, I don't remember how much we dove into some of these strategies in the first episode, but in an effort to make the podcast useful and and, um, applicable to, you know, someone who's listening, who suffers from some kind of perfectionistic behavior, how how can we make um, these suggestions practical? Um, What what are some examples of different strategies people can use to maybe, um, you know, grip the steering wheel a little less tightly? Um, in, in whatever goal or, or project they're trying to achieve or work on? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, let me pause one second so I can properly answer that. Um, if we if we have an example, um, I don't know if that would help some behavior. I could try to think of something I've been uh, sort of unflexible about. Um or if you have one. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely have a lot of them. Okay, okay. I, I, I am one of those people, right, prone to high achieving actions. <laughs> so sure. I have many from my own life. Um, so I think the first one, the first thing I want to say to people who are listening to this episode is that learning to apply active skills for high achieving behaviors is not about letting letting go of your standards and dropping everything you're doing right. It's really about maximizing them without spending hours without sleeping or spending hours without eating or sacrificing your relationships. It's about distinguishing when when you have to do good enough and when you have to pursue for high standards and excellence. Hmm. Um, At a practical level, at a practical level, I will invite people to know this or do a list of all those areas in their life, whether that's romantic relationships, a spiritual life, career or school performance, sports, um, and other areas. And they, if they can do a list of all those actions or things they are doing that they feel that they cannot drop, that they feel very forced and you know they have this push to keep going sometimes working extra hard, but sometimes going beyond, right? Um, so that will be one, one first thing, do an inventory of those behaviors that you feel that you are compelled to do more and more, and mm-hmm. that your mind tells you you cannot stop doing that. Um, after having that list, I will invite people to ask themselves that, these questions. What happens if I don't do X? What does my mind tell me about who I am as a person? 
because the mind may come with the stories. They may judge you. They may think I'm not smart enough. They may think I'm not clean enough. What does my mind tell me about myself if I don't do X? And then I will check how I will feel, you know, if I don't do X, if I don't, if I don't work extra hours writing this paper so it's perfect, what will I, how will I feel? What's the emotion that may come there? Um, those two questions may help a person to check if they are doing things because of the fear of being a failure or because of any negative story about themselves being truth mm-hmm. or being right or because they're really having a hard time sitting with some emotions that may be behind these actions. Um, Another question for people will be, and this is something that happens with perfectionistic actions, is that people don't realize they are engaging in perfectionistic actions because they can be so harsh on themselves. They are so used to be self-critical, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are very, very tough. So if people find themselves engaging in self-criticism, then I will suggest that people ask themselves again, what is self-criticism protecting me from? My mind is going to this very harsh place because in some way it's trying to protect me from what? What's the story that my mind is trying to protect me from? Those are more reflective questions that may help us to check. Am I doing this because clearly we do care about many things, but I'm hooked onto this. I'm protecting myself so hard from being a failure that is taking is taking over, is taking a life on its own. That would be, I think, a, a beginning to check, you know, what type of uh, drivers a person has behind perfectionistic actions. Right, right. So, yeah, that's great. So I wonder if, if sometimes, you know, can that be enough? So, like, if someone realizes that they're putting in, you know, 70, 80-hour work weeks because they're afraid of being seen as, you know, maybe stupid or... Um, not good enough by, you know, mm-hmm. the partners at the place they work or their colleagues. W- what do you do with that? Like, once they find out that they've done a little bit of digging and they found this story, you know, this sort of kind of self-limiting story about their intelligence or or their worth, um, or they find out what exactly their minds are protecting them from. What what can they do next? Is that is it enough sometimes just to know? what some of these motivating stories are or does more need to be done? I think that then the next part comes to what we call in our creative hopelessness, which is really looking at how all those behaviors work in the short and the long term. So let's say that I am a mother of three children and my neighbors are coming for dinner on Friday. And I'm petrified that if my house doesn't look clean, they are going to think I'm a mess, I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad housewife. Right. So when I ask these questions and I say, "Okay, Patricia, you have been cleaning and cleaning every single day. You are removing all the stains from the hardwood floor. You are doing all the laundry. You are changing the tapestry. Are you doing what is what is your mind telling you if you don't do any of those things? And then my mind may say, wow, what if they think that I am I'm a bad mother, that I'm actually a reckless woman, that I don't care for my children? Then I will say, okay, so what's the workability of that in the short and the long term? If you keep cleaning massively as you are doing it, how does it feel in the short term? And I may say it feels good because my house looks very clean, right? Mm. It looks impeccable and my neighbors will absolutely love me and think that they will see that I'm a good woman. They will see Mm -hmm. I'm a good mother. 
But in the long term, let's take a look how it really works. When you spend like three or four days cleaning and cleaning your house, you don't return the call to your mom, you don't talk to your siblings, you don't go out with your friends, you don't take a moment to just reset your body because you are so busy making sure your house looks clean. How does it work in the long term? Um, so I think that's the next part. Within ACT, we call that process creative hopelessness. And what is it? It's called creative hopelessness. Creative hopelessness. Okay, I, I had it. Fancy name. <laughs> I hadn't. I hadn't heard that before. That's yeah, um, and it, it's a very interesting name, right? But it's looking how if we really look at how all those actions work in the long term, we may see that we are paying a high price, right? I think so. That that's hopefully people will see that. Not all the time, as we know. Not all the time. Uh, but after a person reflects and they figure out what are their drivers, let's really, you know, go to the next level, which is what happens in the short term if I keep doing exactly the same things I have been doing? Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's very practical. Uh, and it, it's also, you know, helpful in, in making sure that people are spending their time in the way that they value, right? Like, as you said, if you're spending so much time on house cleaning that you're not, you know, satisfying some more meaningful obligations in your life, like hanging out with friends and family in the long term. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, it, it, it's a really a clear cut example. I hope that it is easy for people to map this example onto their own struggles. I hope so. I'm happy to clarify more too. Um, if you want, I can think of all that example. Well, I, I guess one that comes to mind is, mm-hmm. Some perfectionists, I think the way that they will compulse or the way that they will spend their time sort of unwittingly to make sure that they've arrived at a sub-perfect outcome is just by ruminating. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a lot of, yeah, that's, there is a lot of behaviors associated with perfectionists, right? Rumination, um, difficulties making decisions, procrastination because it's not good enough i need just one more hour one extra day um excessive amounts of time searching for information um difficulties prioritizing difficulties with time management so in the book what i did i tap into those micro skills Mm -hmm. Um, because i think that as you have been pointing once i am aware to make the change i need to learn new skills and that's just part of any therapy, right? Knowing what's my pattern is not enough unless I have a new repertoire of actions, how I can handle mm. that. Um, so in the case of rumination, for example, what I and there are different, there are different ways to tackle rumination, right? Um, if my mind tells me, but what if I am a failure? But what if my neighbors come and they see that there is a stain on my kids' pants? Right. And then I may think, oh, my gosh, they're never going to invite me. They're going to tell the other neighbors. My kids are going to be discriminated. It will be over. My family life will be a disaster. I am amplifying a little bit, uh, perhaps this domestic situation. But that's what the mind does many times. It takes sure. all these disaster forecaster things. I got a mind. I know what it's like. Well, yes, mine too. Right? Like mine goes very, very wild many times. Um, so one way to tackle those thoughts is to distinguish first worry thought on the house in my mind, but I don't have to respond to it. And by mean that I make a personal commitment to myself that when I notice what if there is a stain on my kids' jeans or in my kids' pants, 
I take a deep breath and I say, here's my worry. I'm noticing the worry that I'm having. Where do I want to pay my attention? Do I really want to spend hours, you know, responding to this worry thought? Or do I want to focus on what's in front of me? It feels like a bunch of baloney many times. But let's remember that we have the capacity to choose how to respond to this worry thought, that we don't have to respond to it by resp- with more thinking, mm-hmm. uh, but we have to start exercising somewhere, practicing this, this capacity to choose, right? People may ground themselves, right? Let's take a deep breath. You may want to press your feet hard against the floor, and then you may want to check, okay, do I really have to respond to this thought? Because we know it's a worry thought. We know it's a worry thought, and we know that if I keep responding with more thinking, then after two hours, I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to be stuck in my head. How would it look like to choose a different response to it, like doing something different? Yeah, yeah, I think that's valuable. And I think it, I think it works the same for rumination as it does for like a cleaning compulsion because, you know, at the end of the day, um, whether you're spending time thinking too much about something or cleaning too much, they're both opportunities to you know, shift course and, um, you know, choose other things to think about that might be more in line with your values or other activities. I think, I think something that's hard, I I know that this is hard for myself when I'm stuck in a sort of ruminative loop. Um, a lot of, a lot of what's going on feels like it, it doesn't have much to do with, with my own agency, you know, Mm. like a, a, like, like uh, let's say I'm meditating and I'm sitting on my cushion and my eyes are closed and I'm trying to think about my breath. And then all of a sudden a really scary thought lands in my mind. And it's so um, shocking and forceful that my eyes open and I'm immediately like ready to jump off the cushion and be done with the meditation because um I feel like in those moments, I didn't even have the opportunity to be like, oh, like I, I, I didn't even see it coming. You know, it's just it came out of nowhere. And my initial instinct, a very, very strong and sort of um, well-practiced um, instinct is is to avoid, you know, <laughs> is to go and distract myself or play a game of chess or, you know, go for a walk outside or something. Um, and I, I found that that can be okay for managing sort of anxious thoughts that come and go for, but for very persistent ones, I'm not sure if it's a good solution. At least I I haven't been able to find in my own personal experience that they ever leave or, or ever lower uh, the degree of noisiness or severity. Um, So I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I think it's very hard many times when we have these this persistent thoughts, right? Um, the, the hardest things many times is to move on with the things you need to be doing while having the soundtrack in the back of your mind that keeps going at the same level, right? At the same tune. Another way to handle those unexpected and out of the blue worry thoughts, you can write them in a piece of paper and put them in your pocket. Simple like that. Again, this may feel very simplistic, but what we want to do is start building the muscle of choosing. Choosing doesn't mean that the thought is going to go away, but it means that you're remembering that once again, that you don't have to re-engage on the thought. You don't have to be responding. So a classic exercise could be just write it down in a piece of paper and you take it with you. Another way that you can do, you can just record them on your cell phone. 
recorded that Warifada pop-up, that one that came out of the blue, out of nowhere, just record it there. And then see if you can see with the discomfort of leaving it there without re-engaging on it and focusing mm -hmm. on the things, knowing that there is going to be a soundtrack of worries in the back of your mind. Um, have you ever listened to heavy metal or trash? The the music genres? Yeah, the music genres, yeah. Um, maybe a little bit. <laughs> so how will you describe them? Uh, noisy. Very noisy, very loud, like totally on your face, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many times worries perhaps are like that, right? They're very loud. They come on our face. But what we do, like if you and I are having a conversation and someone starts playing heavy metal, I may mm -hmm. lean my body towards you. I may try to turn up the volume, but I will try to make this conscious effort to listen what you're saying. Right, I'm putting my attention in our conversation while the heavy metal is here in the background. Many times with worries, it's about that. It's about trying to lean in to what's really important, even though the whole thing is in the background. Not easy to do, but if we practice and practice, perhaps that's how we can liberate ourselves from responding to thinking with more thinking. Totally, totally, yeah. I um. Yeah, and I'll, maybe I'll tell you now about that. Uh, this, this, it, it'll be the episode that comes out right before this. But um, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, and and who knows if this belongs in this episode? But um, <laughs> I've I've started um, thinking of and reading about this form of therapy called internal family systems. Hmm. I don't know if it's crossed your desk before. Y yes. Yeah, I've heard about it before. You, you've heard about it. So here's what I think. I think that. Yeah. I think the act stuff and all of this um, uh, like CBT based stuff is really good um, for like, I'd say 95% of the hard stuff. But then I feel like there's a percentage of things that are so deep and so painful and so hard that mm. like some work needs to be done on the inside. Yeah. And, um, what this form of therapy emphasizes is when these worry thoughts are coming up, the strategy is uh, to regard the speaker of those worries as like an actual little person that like mm -hmm. lives inside your mind to, to pay attention to it, give it all this love and care and attention, find out what it's so troubled about, not necessarily to believe it, mm -hmm. right? Not, necess not necessarily to think that it's the gospel or that it knows some truth about your life or the world but um to sort of treat it as kind of like a little kid uh yeah. and offer it the care it needs and i've i've recently found that to be a pretty attractive um kind of way of going about sort of healing as mm -hmm. as you might call it so i i don't know as what i know you've spent a lot of your career in the act stuff but i wonder if if you've thought about this kind of approach at all yeah, yeah. Well, first, I just want to say I command you how open you are to try different things. I think there is no one size that fits everyone. So I appreciate your openness. And and I do have some thoughts, but of course, my opinion is biased because I have drank the Kool-Aid of ACT, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, and one, one of the things... Um, I think in general, cognitive behavior therapy has been 
criticized for being too mechanistic and too worksheet oriented and not pay, that we don't um, omitting paying attention to that relationship or to deeper issues. I think that's true. Historically, that has been one of the biggest criticisms. Um, but I think, you know, ACT as a behavior therapy that blends mindfulness and behavior is also has go perhaps beyond that criticism on the sense that we do pay attention to the relationship that gets developed between um, therapies, coaches, and the clients we're working with. Uh, we also try to understand a family background where a person is coming from, um, the sociocultural influences that have affected their behaviors. Um, when we talk about the context of a behavior, there is, you know, long distance context, right? I grew up in Bolivia, blah, 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 blah. And there is the immediate context, what happens before I was having this thought. Um, and I also think that it is true what you're saying. I think sometimes there are forms of pain that we experience that are bigger than us. They're the size of a house and we get easily overwhelmed with them and we get inundated by them. And one way in which within ACT we think about that is about how their pain related to our, again, our identity about who we are in the world, how we see ourselves, how our mind criticizes us for things that we have done or for things that we haven't done. And within the ACT lens, we can try diffusion in different ways. Um, for example, it is not uncommon that sometimes we will we can name these stories or these worried thoughts and that, that younger version of yourself that was struggling, a younger version of yourself that was doing the best he could or she could to manage a, a moment of fear, a moment of anxiety. And how will you respond to that younger version of yourself? We talk about a younger version of yourself or the older version of yourself. Mm. And within ACT, also, we have embedded a lot of self-compassion. In the case of perfectionistic actions, right, how can we relate to the part of us that is petrified by making mistakes? That means some way, at some point, believe the story that, that I am imperfect. I'm not a good human being. I'm not good enough. Um, and we ask more um, what we call perspective-taking questions, like if your best friend will be holding onto that narrative, how will you tell your best friend to respond? Mm -hmm. uh, will you criticize more? You know, will you will you be tough with your friend, or will be more caring and compassionate? So we do a lot of perspective questions, like um, if you in 20, 25 years, when you look back at this situation, how would you like to feel about yourself that you are in peace and you know that you are living your values? So mm -hmm. there are different ways. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say is inconsistent with ACT. I think within ACT model, because it's a larger model, perhaps, we do things like that under the umbrella of diffusion, under the umbrella of creating more perspective taking to navigate different parts of ourselves of any time are suffering. It just happens that we use the language of fusion with worries and thoughts and the stories. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think will be inconsistent or unusual to think in that way and practice in that way within the ACT model. Got it. Yeah, that's that's great. I actually didn't know that there were opportunities for some of those like perspective takings, um, as you mentioned. So that's that's cool that it's not. Um, and I think I think to be honest, um, for me, this is kind of just my form of black and white thinking about therapy. Like either this one works or this one works like this is the one or this is the one. Because as I've done this podcast, I come yeah. across things over and over again. And I think, oh, Wow, like 
I remember when I went to an OCD conference and I first heard about ACT, I thought, oh, commitment, values, this is it. This is the thing. And then later I came across like the compassion stuff, you know, yeah. and I thought, oh, wow, no, this is it. <laughs> and now I'm on this other train. But, you know, um, I need to have a little bit more flexibility in the way I think of which one is it. Uh, and, and I guess there are many of them instead of just a single one. I, I love what you're sharing. I, I think, I think um, in our quest to find, to be who we want to be, we, we open many doors and we call those doors therapy sometimes, right? There are other mm -hmm. ways in which we can experience personal growth too. Um, so I, th I find that very, very powerful, our search for meaning, right? Our search for finding ourselves over another. Uh, and at the same time, I do think that, um, that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think as long as you keep pursuing that process, you will find what speaks to you, whether that's act or any other model, right? I think the models at the end are just names that we give to ways of thinking, ways to understand our behavior and our pain, right? Uh, but the thing it's beautiful to find that, open the doors and see what relates to you or not. Totally, totally. Cool, cool, very cool. Um, well, once again, we've had a really uh, sort of interesting and organic conversation, which I always appreciate having with you, Patricia. Um, so this book, um, this book is not out just yet, right? It'll be out soon. It is out. It came out in December. Uh, oh, okay. Since I was in Bolivia visiting family and friends, I didn't do much to promote it. Right? I got it. Yeah, it's just out. It's... Um, I, th I think the book could be refreshing because it's not a classic book demonizing perfectionistic actions. Um, there is a whole section on how to play the workability game, which is a little bit what you and I would talk about, these questions that people can use to reflect on their own behavior. And then the other two sections are really all about learning micro skills. How can you make decisions? Uh, which is very hard when you're striving for perfection because say, because saying yes to something means grieving the pain of saying no that you also mm. care about, right? And that, that's hard to navigate, right? Or how do we know that good enough is good enough? If you're an artist, if you're a musician, if you're a creator, how do you know that good enough is good enough? So I tackle into things like that. Um, when do you know that you already have acquired enough information to make a choice, not necessarily a perfect choice? How to navigate with these self-criticizing stories that push you to run away from many things by doing things right and perfect. Um, so there's a lot of micro skills to tackle into the most common dilemmas that I have seen. Uh, procrastination, self-criticism, decision-making, spending hours and hours either ruminating or searching for a lot of information. Um, how to navigate placating behaviors. What if I, um, I want to be this perfect partner in my relationship? And it's all about my partner's need. And I'm petrified about saying no or asserting what I need because mm -hmm. that would mean rejection or failure as a person. So I, I have you know a couple of chapters on that as well. Sounds very useful. Hopefully it is. <laughs> so where will where can people find the book? Um, the book is available on Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also preparing a free audio guide with 10 episodes. 
Um, because I couldn't add all the stuff in the book. You always have the limit of the number of words, right? And there's always a lot that we want to say. So if people go to the website, the thisisdrz.com website, they can mm-hmm. register for a free audio guide with 10 episodes that are completely um, related to the book, but there is new content. It's not in the book. Totally. Awesome. And um, yeah, is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't discussed in this uh in this conversation hmm. yeah yeah and i don't know if this is appropriate or not so i will follow your lead but um the last week it has been really rocky witnessing all the stuff that is happening in ukraine and that invasion from russia and um for people listening to this conversation or when they listen to us let's remember that being kind is that is that is the thing for us to do as we continue to navigate these these moments of a struggle not easy to watch the news these days uh, but let's remember also that we're wired to be kind with each other and as long as we do that even one tiny behavior every day you know we're doing our part totally yeah that's a good message um, hopefully by the time that this is published that will have been resolved yes yes i hope that Well, thank you so much, Dr. Z. It's uh, been a pleasure again speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. And I hope it was helpful for the audience. And as usual, I very much appreciate the realness of your conversation with you. Mm -hmm. I love it.